Thank you for listening to the Sharon Church Podcast. If you'd like to know more about the church, please visit us at SharonChurch.com. Now we hope you learn from and enjoy today's message. Grab your Bibles, go and grab them and turn to Exodus chapter two. Exodus two, you can pull it up on your device if you want to. I'm gonna teach out of the English Standard Version, the ESV, if you wanna read along with that. But whatever version you read, read that one. And so that's what we'll be in this morning, Exodus chapter two, continuing really a year-long series through the book of Exodus. We're in week five and we're just finishing Exodus chapter two, which then informs you how we can make this last a whole year. And so we're in Exodus chapter two. The last three verses this morning is, uh, is where we're gonna be. And we do, again, we've provided more resources. I just, we don't want this just to be something you come and listen to on a Sunday. We want this to be a journey of faith. This story of Exodus is our story. It's the story of, of the Israelites, sure, thousands of years ago, but this very story, you're gonna find some similarities if you're honest about it in your own story. And so we've provided some resources. So if you want uh, our study guide, just a way to study along with this series, there are discussion questions, there are uh, all sorts of things, things about the plagues that maybe you didn't know. You can scan this with your camera on your phone and then you can download it right to your phone. You can have it right there for you and you can use that as a guide to study. There are a bunch of resources on our website as well, SharonChurch.com. You can watch some videos uh, that maybe help bring more to life for you. And then another resource we have is if you're leading a family, this is a family guide. If you're like me and you have kids who desperately need Jesus in their life, like they just need them because they're evil, wicked creatures. And I feel like Jesus would really help our kids. So uh, not my, my kids are great. Um, yours might be a problem. So you can do the same thing, scan this. This will give you 10 weeks of just questions to ask your kids, whether you're um, in, the line, in the carpool line with your preschooler, maybe you're on the way to uh, softball, baseball, dance practice, just ways to have conversations with them, some ways to have conversation around dinner and more intentionally, but that's all in this guide. So if you need something, maybe you want to teach your kids about Jesus, just don't know how to, I hope this resource can help you do that. Again, if, if you can't get it from here, go to our website. We'll give you a link to take you uh, to download it there as well. All right, uh, on the screen now will be a list of verses I'm gonna use this morning. And so take a picture of it, write it down. We're gonna move pretty quickly through it, but I want you to see that I'm not making it up. This is from the Bible that it's all right here in God's holy word. And so you can, we're gonna get to some of these um, throughout the course of the morning. And you type A people who are gonna be waiting for me to get to certain ones, don't do that. Don't do that. Just, just enjoy the journey. Just enjoy the journey. We'll get there together. So these are the scriptures we're gonna reference here um, this morning. So Exodus 2, we're gonna wrap it up, wrap up chapter 2 today, and then the pace will pick up. So next week, we're gonna hit all of Exodus 3. The next week will be all of Exodus 4. We're gonna start picking up the pace here as the story picks up uh, the pace. I wanna read these three verses. I wanna give us a little bit of context, and then I want us to study deeply into these three verses. There's, this is a huge moment in the book of Exodus that we miss if we're not paying attention. So Exodus chapter 2, we're gonna begin in verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt, this is Pharaoh, died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. 
God saw the people of Israel and God knew. See, four things, God heard, God remembered, God saw, and God knew. In this moment, um, in the story of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, have been in slavery for what will amount to be about 430 years, all told. They've been in slavery for a long time, and we hit this moment now where everything in the story changes. So we've seen the bad, and now we get a little behind-the-scenes glim- behind glimpse of what God is up to. It's, it's the first time God makes himself known in this book so far. We've learned a lot about Moses and Miriam and we know about Aaron and we know about uh, Moses' mom and dad and we know about Pharaoh, but now, now God makes himself known. I don't know if you're like me, um, but in the middle of the night, things that are not dangerous look very dangerous to me. Is that, are you anyone like that? Like in the middle of the night, the most, the most insignificant thing feels like someone here to murder me and my children. Is that how it looks for you? Like it could be a shirt that I hung up on the handle, like on the door handle of my closet. And all of a sudden it's, it's this guy. He's about three feet tall and he is, he's here to kill me. He is. And he's gonna start with my foot that's outside of the covers. He's gonna start there. Then he, he's just gonna take me out. Then he'll leave my wife there um, and then he'll go get my kids. And I, and I, and I can't find him because I keep looking over him because he's right, I can't, I can't find him. If it's a shirt, it could be sounds that I hear that I, I am, I'm pretty sure, like I'm pretty sure someone is trying to burrow into my house, like from the bottom. And we're on a slab, so I'm not sure how that would happen, but I'm, I'm fairly certain. At one point, one night, Meredith and I were asleep and we heard this loud, I mean, it sounded like, it sounded like a cannonball hit our house. I'm like, oh, this is how it goes. This is how we all go right here. This is the end. And so I'm, I'm a very strong man. So I'm, Meredith, go look, go see what that was. And so I get up, I get up and I, I walk outside and it's just this dumb armadillo who has rolled his way into our house. Like he hit the outside of our house. That, that's cool. And then I don't go back to sleep because I'm pretty sure that armadillo is wearing my shirt that I was hanging on the, on the closet and he's here to kill my children. Um, one point um, we were living in Savannah at the time and um, I, I don't have good eyesight. Uh, so I wear contacts and I wear glasses and I don't, I don't wear glasses that look cool because my lenses won't fit in cool glasses. Like they, they, have, to, like they have to be really sturdy to hold the depth of my lenses. And so, um, so my contacts out, uh, like I do every once in a while when I go to sleep, don't tell my eye doctor. Uh, but I, we went to sleep and, um, and I, I heard a sound in the middle of the night and it was our smoke alarm, um, but it wasn't beeping like there's a fire. I think it was just kind of beeping like the battery's dying, which is really convenient at three in the morning. Oh, I should get up and change that now. Um, but anyway, so that's happening. But in my mind, I don't compute that that's what's happening. And I can't see a thing, like not a thing. And not because it's dark, but because I'm pretty much blind. I can't see a thing. And so I open uh, my eyes to nothing and I just start swiping at whatever I can find. And so I'm, I'm convinced it's the phone that's ringing. And at that point, we had a house phone. Um, a house phone was a, never mind. We had a house phone. And, uh, and so I'm pushing buttons, just trying to get it to shut off and it won't shut off. And I throw the phone, I threw it. And here's how I remember that I threw it. Because a week later, we couldn't find the house phone. I was like, man, I knew I saw it somewhere. Where did, where did I see the phone? And then it's like, a, then it all comes back to me. And I'm like, oh, that's right, I threw it. And so then I have to pull back Meredith's dresser and there it is, 
There it is, behind her dresser um, against the wall, this house phone. Because in the middle of the night, when I can't see, the things that are not dangerous at all become very dangerous. In the middle of the night, when I can't see, when I have lack of vision, I have misunderstanding. Are you like that? When things are dark, things don't look the same way they do in the light. And when things get bleak and when things get dark, everything that we know about the world goes out the window. Like, I know my doors are locked. I know I have an alarm system. I, I know all of those things. But in the middle of the night, I lose sight of what reality actually is. So we're gonna read an account here from the book of Exodus. And I want us to take some of that idea into it with us. Because here's, here's what happens for us. The Bible, on this side of history, the Bible gives us eyes to see in the dark. The Bible gives us a way to see the world that the world doesn't necessarily want us to see. It opens our eyes, even in the darkness, it gives us light to see what's happening. And so this is happening here, and I want us to make sure that we see it. So this is a huge transition in this story, and there's a couple words here that, I'm gonna, that are gonna make that point for me, but we've waited on God. We've only waited like almost two chapters for God. They've waited 400 something years for God to show up, to intervene, to do what he had promised he would do. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you feel like you've been waiting on God for what feels like 430 years for God to do what you thought he had promised to do. And so what's happened for you is that in the darkness of waiting, you've lost sight of reality and of truth. And you've begun to question everything. And this is what's happening here for them. So now we finally see God as an active character in the scripture. Verse 23 says, during those many days. Well, what many days? Well, remember last week we saw that Moses ran. He killed a man. Mama, I killed a man. And he killed a man. <laughs> Gosh. You need, to, you need to listen to better music because that was, that was a good one. That was really good. <laughs> he, uh, <laughs> Moses, Moses kills a man in Egypt. Uh, he's, he's Hebrew, but he's been raised in Pharaoh's house as an Egyptian finally starts to identify with the Hebrew people. He goes out, kills an Egyptian slave master, buries him in the sand. The next day he finds two Hebrew men that he, think are, he thinks are gonna be proud of him. Like, you've come to save the day. They're like, are you here to kill us too? And so then he runs. And so Pharaoh has a bounty out on Moses and Moses runs to a land of Midian. And there uh, at a well, he ends, up, he ends up meeting a girl. And then the girl takes him home to meet her dad. And then they end up getting married and they have kids and that's all happening and so this, during those many days, is like, meanwhile, back at the ranch. This is what's happening. So meanwhile, back in Egypt. While all that's happening, while, while God's working and building something in Moses in the wilderness, it's a whole other sermon, but he's building something in Moses in the wilderness. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. Pharaoh died. Now, that's important for us. And sometimes when we're in the midst of the darkness, we're looking for God to miraculously intervene. And what happens is we discount the things that are mundane. We're so busy looking for the supernatural that we miss God's hand in the natural. It's not a supernatural occurrence that the king of Egypt died. He died because he was old. That's why he died. His body gave out. It wasn't a miracle. It wasn't supernatural, but it was natural. But if you're paying attention, this natural occurrence, still, still run by the hand of a sovereign God, is powerful in what's happened. Because this king died, because that Pharaoh died, the bounty on Moses' head is no longer active. 
this Pharaoh is not the same Pharaoh who was out to kill Moses. This Pharaoh, this new Pharaoh, is not the Pharaoh in which Moses grew up in his home. This is not that same Pharaoh. There's a new king. There's a new ruler. Something is shifting. And if you're looking for the supernatural, you miss the shift even in the natural. The king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned. This word groaned is like you can't even help it. Like it just comes out. They they groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. So I want you to pay attention. This is all that Israel is doing. They're groaning and they're crying out. That's their activity. Their activity in getting the attention of God is groaning and crying out for rescue from slavery. That's their action. That's their activity in the story so far. Now, up until this point, we don't know for sure, but we haven't learned in the first two chapters that that the Israelites are crying out for slavery at all. We know that they're in slavery. We know it's been bad but we don't hear of anyone crying out for slavery. In fact, when Moses shows up and, I mean, wrongfully murders a man and kills this man to try to help set them free, their instinct isn't, oh, this might be the way out. The instinct is, you idiot, now it's gonna get worse. They haven't asked for rescue. They're just asking for the darkness to be not quite as dark. But now there's this moment where they're crying out for slavery. Was it because there's a new Pharaoh? Maybe, I mean, maybe. I mean, we do it every presidential cycle, don't we? This will be the year. God, help us, help us this time. Give us a good politician. And God's like, I can do all things. I'm just not sure I can give you that. <laughs> but I, I don't know. But they finally are crying out for rescue from slavery. Verse 24, and God heard their groaning. He heard it. Now, does that mean he didn't hear things before? No. This word here is the same word in Deuteronomy, which in the Hebrew is called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. This is called the Shema. So this word to hear, we translate it here. And parents, you're gonna love this. What this word actually means is to hear and obey. Don't you love that? I'm just gonna tell my kids, Shema, just Shema. What's your problem? Shema me now. So it's not just that they're cognizant, that God is cognizant, but it's that he hears in a way that drives to appropriate action. So it's, it's not passive. He is actively listening in a way that's then pushing him to action. He hears their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Now, don't make the mistake of reading remembered and thinking what we think about when we think about remembered. Like, oh, I forgot my keys, and then I remembered them oh, I forgot my wife's birthday, and then she helped me remember it. That's not, it's not that God forgot anything. Um, This is more of, again, that active recollection. He's building a foundation on this, is what's essentially being said. This is the foundation, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And then verse 25, God saw, He noticed, he recognized, he saw intently the people of Israel. And then the ESV finishes with, and God knew. Now, if you have a different translation, if you're reading out the King James Version, here's how verse 25 goes. God looked upon the children of Israel 
and God had respect unto them. The New King James says God looked upon the children of Israel and God acknowledged them. If you have the NIV, New International, it says God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. The New, English, New American Standard said God saw the sons of Israel and he took notice of them. So my translation ends with God knew, which leaves it wide open. What did God know? But in the original language, in the Hebrew, this word knew is actually pointing directly back to the people of Israel. What did God know? He knew his people. He knew them. God knew his people. And the question you might be asking if you're like me is, well, if, if God saw his people, if he had heard their groanings, if he always knew about the covenant he made with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob, why wait 430 years? Do you feel that way? God, if you saw, God, if you loved me, and if I know that you never leave me or forsake me, then you were there when that happened. And you've been there the whole time. And you were there when my marriage was falling apart and you saw it and you did nothing. You were there when, when my son or daughter started wilding out and I'd bail him out of jail. You were there. Why didn't you help? You were there when I got cancer. Why didn't you step in? Isn't that the question? Right, that's the question, isn't it? If we're being honest, that's the question. Great, I, great, God saw, but why didn't he do anything? Because if, if he's sovereign and powerful, why didn't he save my marriage? If God is powerful and sovereign, why, why didn't he save my child? Why? Why? And that's the question that begs to be answered here. God saw them. But then this key phrase, but God knew them. He knew them. He intimately knew the people of Israel. So even the other translations, God noticed them, God acknowledged them, great. But this is deeper than that. He knew them intimately. He knew his people. So let me show you why this is such a big shift. Look back to Exodus chapter one, verse eight. There's another shift in power. And we're told there's a new king that arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Joseph was the one who represented Israel in Egypt at the time. And because that Pharaoh knew Joseph, the people of Israel were kept at bay. They, they weren't slaves. They were there because there was famine in their land. They came to be rescued and so they were there. They were immigrants who were cared for. Exodus chapter one, verse, verse eight, a new Pharaoh comes in who does not know the people of Israel. And because he does not know them intimately, he can make them slaves. Because he doesn't care about them or acknowledge them, because he isn't concerned about their well-being, he can make them slaves. But there's a shift that happens now because we aren't told there's a new king here, are we? We're just told the old one died. But what we are meant to infer was there is a new king and that king is God. And that king knows his people. He's not like the old king. He's not like the enemy. He's better because he knows his people. He's a better king. So for you and me, here's what this means for us. He knows you and he knows me. 
And we build our understanding of the world based on the old pharaohs in our lives, don't we? Every other leader we've ever met, every other person we followed, even with the best of intentions, at some point started making decisions, not because they knew us, because they knew themselves. And as good as maybe your daddy was, at some point he failed you. And we build a paradigm about the world, not based on the king of God who knows his people. We build a paradigm of the world based on the old kings of Egypt who don't know us. And then when it gets dark, we take the paradigm of the old king and we place that onto our new king and we say, well, then God must be just like that. Well, why hasn't God rescued me? Because I'm just a slave to him. Because he doesn't really care about me. I'm just... I'm just a pawn in some game he's playing. Why hasn't God rescued me? Well, because he doesn't actually know me. So we, in the dark, we begin to see things that aren't actually meant to be there. So scripture tells us over and over again that God does know us and wants relationship with us. Genesis chapter two God's created the world in Genesis one. It's retold again in chapter two and God creates man and he, and he places him in the midst of the garden and he says, I want you to work this garden and keep it, care for it, cultivate it. And then he says to Adam, the man, there is one thing though. There's a tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. I don't want you to eat from that tree. Now, we talked about this this past Wednesday night in our core class. Think about this. That was the first law that God gave to man. But that commandment didn't come in response to sin. That commandment wasn't about modifying Adam's sinful behavior. This command was God saying to Adam, do you trust me? Do you trust me? I'm putting this right here. The question is, do you trust me? But why, why would God place it there? Because God wants relationship from Adam and Eve. And without trust, there's no relationship. And so God, from the beginning, has said, I care for you, I am for your good. Don't touch the tree. I mean, don't, don't eat from the tree. Do you trust me? Adam doesn't trust. He fails to communicate properly to Eve what the commandment was. Eve eats from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and she then begins to know what good and evil is. She gives some to Adam and he eats as well. And so they find themselves for the first time in history, humanity separated from God. And what they look at at each other, they used to be naked and unashamed and now they're naked and very ashamed. They begin to cover what separates them, what makes them different. They make fig leaves to make loincloths, which sounds awful. And so they do that. And then God in Genesis three is looking for Adam and Eve and he sees them. And God provides new coverings for them from the shed blood of an animal. Coverings that will not fade and wilt. Coverings from him. Because all the while in the midst of Adam and Eve's sin, God's intent for them is not punishment, but relationship. And God is saying to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, with the coverings from the shed blood of an animal, you can trust me. You can trust me. I've got it covered. 
you can trust me. Throughout scripture, we hear things like God telling us that he is with us, he will never leave us or forsake us, okay? Well, then what do we do with that? What does he actually know about us? Psalm 103, verse 14 says that he knows our frame or he knows how we were made. He remembers that we are dust. Some translations say that we are merely dirt. What God knows about us is that we are human. That's what he knows. What he knows is that we are frail and we are prone to wander. What he knows is that we don't have divine strength. What he knows is there's only so much we can take. What he knows is that we're just dust. He knows how he made us. He knows what's in man's heart. Well, then what does he do about that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Earlier in Psalm 103, it says, he has made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He knows us, so he's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Because he knows us, he will not always chide. He will not keep his anger forever. And because he knows us, he does not deal with us according to our sins or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. Because he knows us, as far as the east is from the west, is as far as he removes our transgression from us. And as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for or because he knows our frame. He knows us. He remembers that we are but dust or dirt. You wanna know why it's comforting at the end of Exodus chapter two, that God knows his people because he knows what they're made of. He knows. He knows how far things can go before we crack. He knows how much we need to crack before we see him. He knows. He knows that after 400 something years of slavery in Egypt, they were groaning and crying out for rescue. He knows. He knows that one day longer would have been a day too much. He knows but he also knows one day less would have been a day too few. He knows. He knows what we need and when we need it. He knows in which seasons we need to be at certain stages of our lives. He knows. He knows our frame. He knows how he made us and he is gracious and kind. He is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's not like the old Pharaoh. This is a new king who knows you. He's not like your dad. He's not like your ex-husband. He's not like your grandfather or your boss or your mom or your sister or brother. He knows you. And so the slavery is not meant to punish, but to refine. The slavery is not meant to debilitate, but to deliver. He knows. He knows you and he knows me. He knows. It also said that he remembered something, right? He remembered a covenant he made with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. Well, Exodus is part two of this five book series. And so back in Genesis, we meet a man named Abram, whom God would later change his name to Abraham. And he comes to Abram and he says, hey, old man, I'm gonna bless you. And I'm gonna give you a child. I know you haven't had kids. I know your wife thinks she's barren. I know you're you're past the age of having kids, but I'm gonna give you a child. And when I do, that child will then have many children who will have many children and you'll have so many descendants, you won't be able to count them. 
and you will be my people. You will begin a new humanity on this earth as my chosen people. You will be it. I'm choosing you. Well, it takes a while for God to come through on his promise. And Abraham has a few doubts because in Genesis 12, he told him this was gonna happen. And then we get to Genesis chapter 15 and it still hasn't happened yet. And so Abraham and Ossie goes to God and says, okay, how about now? Because you said, but you haven't. Am I just supposed to, is it like my nephew? Because he's a dirtbag. Is, is he the one? He can't be the one. And God says, no, 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 that's not the one. Genesis chapter 15, verse seven, God makes a covenant. This is the covenant he makes. God says to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out, of, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And Abram said, oh Lord God, but how am I to know that I shall possess it? Do you ever feel like Abraham? I mean, great, but how do I know? And then God's response makes perfect sense. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. God, how will I know that this is going to come true? And God says, just go find a farm and then bring me those weird animals, bring them all. Isn't that how God answers your prayers? Like, God, am I supposed to marry this girl? And God's like, listen, why, why, don't, you, why don't you fly to Montana, uh, bring back some grass-fed cattle, and then we can talk about it. How about that? So Abram, though, because he is uh, faithful and obedient, verse 10, he brings all of them, and then he cuts them in half. Pay attention. He cuts them in half and laid each half over against the other. He splits them. So there's this long line of dead animals cut in half. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, while he was sleeping, mind you, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, travelers, in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now, if you're paying attention to the timeline, Moses hasn't come on yet. Joseph hasn't even been born yet. And God is telling Abraham, there's coming a day where you will have ancestors, and these ancestors will be slaves in a foreign land for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. If you know the story of Exodus, you know that to be true. As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in an old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God has a plan. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. So this is what is instituted now is essentially a blood covenant. And God has Abram bring these certain animals and he has them cut them in half and then what's in the middle of cut in half animals is your right blood, which also looks a lot like a Red Sea. I'm just saying, it looks like a Red Sea. And Abram is there with God and God says, you wanna know how you can trust that I'm gonna come through with my promise? I'm gonna make this blood covenant with you. Now, normally what would happen is the two people making the covenant, they would both walk through this together as if to signify we're in this together. We're making this covenant to one another. 
That's what, that's what would have normally happened. But God makes Abram fall asleep. And so Abraham does not walk through. God walks through as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. As if to say, you wanna know, Abram, how you can trust me? Because I'm the only one making the covenant. Because it's not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon me. And then he says in verse 18, on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Exodus chapter two, when God remembered, what did God remember? God remembered this. It's not that he forgot it, but he's reminding everyone else, I don't forget my promises. And my promises aren't dependent upon you. The covenant I made to bring your people out of slavery in Egypt, after I told you they would be there 400 years. And you were like, yeah, but 400 and like dog ears is this. And then, but if one day is a thousand years and what is this? And God said, no, 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 I told you. And I'm faithful. And it's not about you. It's not about your faithfulness or the faithfulness of Abraham. I'm gonna set my people free. And why is God the only one walking through the blood covenant? Because God knows that we are just dust. Because he knows if he came to us and said, I'll make you a deal. You be holy and I'll do my part. We would never make it. And so he comes to his people and says, hey, I'll make you a deal. Why don't you fall asleep and I'll handle the rest? The only activity the Israelites had was that they cried out to God and they groaned. That's it. They didn't create a, an army or a militia. They didn't look for a way out. They didn't start um, burrowing with, uh, with some kind of a homemade shank with a plastic spoon. They cried out to God. And God knows his people and he knows his timing. But notice the word is covenant, not contract. A contract is an agreement between parties while a covenant is a pledge made by one. A covenant or a contract is an agreement you can break while a covenant is a perpetual promise. A contract is mutually beneficial while a covenant is something only one party fulfills. Why does God make covenants? Because he knows us. Because God knows his people, he knows what it takes to rescue us and it takes him fulfilling his promise. That's what it takes. This king is not like the other king who makes contracts. This king makes covenants and he always upholds his end of the bargain. So the question for us then is, well, what do we do? Like in the midst of our slavery, in the midst of our exile, in the midst of our darkness where we can't see and we're tempted to think that the things we saw in the light are now dangerous to us in the dark. And we're tempted to believe that in the dark, this king, this God is just like the old king. What do we do? Well, it's right here for us. I think first we cry out to God. That's what we do. Because we remember that he hears us. Now notice, you don't cry out to your spouse and you don't cry out to your kids or your mama and your daddy. You don't cry out to your 401k. You don't cry out uh, to a new job or a new career or a new wife or a new husband. No, no, no. We cry out to God. There's the man in John chapter five waiting to be healed outside of this pool. 
He's been an invalid for 38 years and Jesus shows up, walks over a bunch of other invalid people because he sees this man. And he says to him, do you want to be healed? And the man's response is not, shoot you. The man's response is, I mean, I'd like to, but everybody else goes in first. Which means, no, I don't really want to be healed. I wanna make excuses. I'd rather do that. The question, do you wanna be free? Do you want freedom from your slavery? Do you want freedom from your exile? Do you want to be healed and cry out to God? That's who we cry out to. We don't cry out to methods. We don't cry out to circumstances. And the next season, we cry out to God. Secondly, is that we remember his covenant. We remember that he made a covenant with you, not a contract. So whatever darkness you're in that you think you caused, you need to remember. It doesn't matter if you caused it. God is faithful to deliver you from it. It doesn't matter because it's not a contract that says God will rescue you as long as you're worth rescuing. He'll rescue you if you're good. No, no, no. Watch the rest of this story. No, he's faithful to his covenant. He's faithful to the promise he made. Thirdly, you need to see him in the darkness. Look for him. Look for the work he's doing, not just in the supernatural, but sometimes in the natural. The king of Egypt died. Wasn't supernatural. This was a natural occurrence that paved the way for the rescue of God's people. Look for him in the mundane. Like look for him on a Tuesday. You know what I mean? Like every other day has their thing. Right, like Sunday is the Sabbath, it's church day. Monday, everybody hates Mondays. Wednesday, uh, it's like the middle of the week, it's hump day. Thursday is, is Friday Eve, so that, that's fine. Thursday night football happens, and then Friday is the freaking weekend, and then it's the weekend on Saturday, and then you're back to Sunday. But it's like, what does Tuesday get? Tuesday gets nothing. Like Tuesday's just a day. Like even the NFL won't play on Tuesday unless there's COVID. That's the only way they'll play. Like nothing happens. So what I'm saying is look for God on your Tuesday when you're just getting the kids up and getting them to school and then going to work and then coming back home to feed your kids and get them bathed and back in bed. Like look for him in that. Not just on the retreats, but there, look for him. And then fourth, we have to be known. Trust that God knows you and that he knows exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. And a day too soon could ruin you and a day too late would kill you. So he gives you what you need when you need it. And he's always on time. God made a promise to Abram that he's now fulfilling through Moses. Be patient. Okay, that's fine. But what, what do you do while you're waiting? Like, what do we do in the exile? What Jeremiah 29, 11 says, and you've, you've seen it, you've told your senior in high school this. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, right? And not to harm you. That sounds awesome, doesn't it? What that means is the plans that God has for me um, are gonna be amazing and they're gonna start tomorrow, so I can't wait. Well, the context of Jeremiah 29 is Jeremiah writing to God's people in slavery. They're in exile. Again, because it's what happens. 
But it's all in this context. Verse four begins with, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. He says, hey, while you're there, while you're in your darkness, while you're waiting, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. What is God saying to do in our exile? He's saying you might as well enjoy the gifts of God in the midst of it. There's two things you can do in your exile. You can stay in the dark corner and huddle up and wait for God to rescue. Or you can trust that God is coming to your rescue and he's placed you there for such a time as this. And you might just find some joy there. You might just find some joy in the pain inside of your marriage falling apart. You might just find some joy and contentment and peace in trusting the sovereign hand of God in your sickness or in your infertility. You might just be able to smile and laugh and be merry. He says, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream. It's a lie they're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. These prophets are saying, hey, not much longer, it's gonna be fine. God's coming and he'll probably come in the next 30 minutes. That's what the prophets are saying. Thus says the Lord, when your 70 years are completed in Babylon, I mean, that's not the same thing as, hey, go get them, graduate. This is, this might be a lifetime. But when it's time, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise. I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans here, plans in the darkness, plans in the exile, plans in your 70 years, your 430 years. I have plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me, cry out to me, come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart and I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations, all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. The truth of the Exodus story is that God is working a plan and he is coming to rescue And while you're waiting, cry out to him. While you are waiting, remember his covenant. While you are waiting, look for him. While you are waiting, be known by him. And while you are waiting, there might just be some joy for you there. God knows what he's doing and he knows you. And he knows exactly what he's doing with you because he created you and he created the world around you. He can handle it. He's coming and he's coming when the time is right. If you'll bow your heads and close your eyes and we'll finish up. There are many of us, I know, in the midst of our own exile, in the midst of our own slavery and It's like we know all the things in our head, like what God is, but on a day-to-day basis, it's really hard to trust it anymore. And so like Moses, um, we find ourselves 
reacting out of emotion to spur the work of God forward. God's not gonna change his timetable because of what we've done. Maybe we're like Abraham and God's promised something to us and we just can't keep waiting for it. And so we're gonna take matters into our own hands and we're gonna make our own heir. Well, you can't slow down the promise of God. I wonder how many of us this morning find ourselves in a similar place to the Israelites crying out to God saying, where are you? It's been long enough. And if you were gonna write the story, you'd have already set yourself free. Like you've learned all you need to learn, you get it. I think what we need to do this morning is first trust God. And not just because he's powerful, but because he intimately knows you. He knits you together in your mother's womb. He knows exactly how long it takes the cake to bake. And he won't show up a minute too late or a minute too soon. So keep crying out, but look for him in it. And you might just find some joy in your waiting. Maybe this morning, what you need to cry out for is rescue from your sin. Maybe the crying out for you is you've gotten so weary and heavy laden from asking everybody else to rescue you from your guilt and your shame. There's only one who can, and that's Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world the son of God who lived a perfect life that we could not live, the one who makes covenants and keeps them. And you would say to him, you just admit, God, I, I am merely flesh and dust. I am, and I need a savior. And you believe and trust that that's him and declare it with your mouth and you show it by the way you live your life, that you'll find salvation there. You will be rescued from the penalty of sin and death and the power of shame and guilt. It's there to be found in the finished work of Jesus, if you just believe. Father, I thank you again for who you are. I thank you for the morning. I thank you for this great time, amazing time to be together with people who love you more than I do and people who are continually moving towards you in the midst of even darkness. I thank you that we get to sing songs of truth. I thank you that we get to remind our souls who you are. And God, I'm thankful that you are present and you're present through your word. So Father, would you make us a people who see in the darkness, help us to take these accounts of your people and lay them over our lives that we might know the same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of me too. And you're faithful. Help us to remember it. May we cling to it. Give us people in our lives to point us back to it to who you are. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.